you got a Bible, go ahead and find 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6. Uh, we're going to be taking a quick break from our journey through 1 John, and we're going to have a conversation that's going to be awesome. It's about to get real up in here. And, and I want to kick this thing off by unpacking bad, worse, and worst. Bad, worse, and worst. Here's what I mean. Bad is a friend that does not tell you that you've got an entire piece of lettuce on your tooth. That's a bad friend. Can we agree? Don't be that friend. Uh, don't, don't avoid the awkward conversation. Go ahead and tell me if my fly is down. Be a good friend to me, right? <laughs> worse, worse is a doctor that doesn't want to tell you about your disease because he doesn't want to bum you out, right? You don't want to go to that doctor. That's not a good doctor, you don't want to be a part of a doctor that's afraid of hurting your feelings and withholds the truth that you need to know so that you can get treatment. Now, let's do worst. Worst is a pastor who is so cowardly that he avoids talking about stuff in scripture that might make you want to leave the church. That's the worst. That's the worst. To have a pastor that's afraid of opening up scripture and giving the full counsel of God, even on controversial topics or topics that make us feel uncomfortable because he's terrified of losing people and money, that's not a good pastor. And I don't want to be one of those pastors. I don't want to avoid difficult topics out of the fear of man. I want to fear Jesus and I want to love you guys enough that when it comes to things that we don't want to talk about, I want us to have the courage together to have those conversations. Uh, Frontline Church is committed to not be a Sunday morning show or a crowd. We want to be a biblical church. And what Paul said to the Ephesian elders, I want to be true of me and anybody that gets to preach here, and that's that he didn't withhold from giving them the full counsel of God's word. So we don't want to be cowards, and we don't want to give an account to Jesus for stuff that we did not talk about. So today, with that in mind, we get to talk about something that nobody in the room wants to talk about and that is money. Today we get to talk about money. And I'll say this, there's two ways that pastors get conversations on money really wrong. The first ways that pastors miss this is some pastors talk about money all the time. And they don't talk about money all the time because they really love their people. They talk about money all the time because they really love money. And I want Jesus to deliver us from that kind of evil because it is evil. We don't want to be that church that loves money and ignores God's people. We want to be a church that loves God and loves God's people and that talks about money out of love. Right? Secondly, pastors can get this wrong, not because they talk about money all the time, but because they never talk about money because they're afraid of rocking the boat. And I'll just say this, Jesus was no cowardly pastor. Jesus talked about everything that we don't want to talk about. <laughs> Jesus talked about things that seem mundane and he talked about things that seem giant and he talked about all of those things because Jesus cared deeply about what we worship. And the thing about money that's such a big deal and the reason Jesus went to conversations about money pretty frequently is because there's no way to extract what you worship from how you spend. What you worship and what you do with your money are absolutely related in profound ways that cannot be separated. And here's the big deal. What you worship is of the greatest importance to your immortal soul. So Jesus cares about immortal souls. And because he cares about immortal souls, he had conversations about money in his earthly ministry. 
Now, I, I can almost hear the argument in the room. In fact, I can hear a lot of arguments in the room. And one of the arguments in the room is, man, just stick to the spiritual stuff. We don't want to talk about money. We don't want to talk about this stuff that makes everybody feel awkward. Talk about the spiritual things. And my response to that is that there's no way, there's no way to compartmentalize things like sex and your spirituality. You just can't do that. You can't compartmentalize work and your spirituality. You can't do that. It doesn't work. You can't compartmentalize what you do with money and how you value money from your spiritual life. You can't separate these things because these things are related in what it means to be a total human being in a world that's both spirit and matter. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't separate or divorce things that might seem not spiritual from the things that are spiritual because all of those things are related in a life of worship. Who we are as people are spiritual and material. We live in a world that's spiritual and material. And so what you do on Monday at 9 a.m. as you get up and go to work is just as spiritual as what we're doing right now. What you do when you sit down to pay your bills, it's just as spiritual as what we're gonna do at the end of this service as we lay hands on sick people and pray for them. There is no, there is no sense in the old tired logic of just sticking to the spiritual stuff because you can't do it. It's all connected it's all related. So today, with that in mind, we're going to talk about money because this is one of the areas in our culture and in our church where things are really bananas. We're going to talk about money because money and our relationship with money is inhibiting our worship. It's affecting our marriages. It's limiting our impact in the world. It's keeping us from laying up treasure in heaven. And most importantly, it's a barometer of what we love. So today, unapologetically, without really being concerned about whether or not you're going to come back next week, if I make you mad, we're going to have a frank conversation about what scripture says about money. So take your Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to read our text, and then we're going to talk about it. Paul writes to Timothy these words, starting in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy about controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Skip down to verse 17. We'll pick up there. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, 
thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The end game of today is not a second offering. You can sit on your wallet. We're not gonna ask you to get it out today. The end game of today is not a fundraising project. The end game of today is that we as a group of people would be formed by Jesus to take hold of that which is truly life. So today what we're gonna do is walk through this text. I wanna show you three big things in this passage. Number one, we're gonna talk about the money lie. There is a lie about money that's toxic and many of us have believed it. Secondly, we're gonna talk about the money danger. What is so dangerous about money? And thirdly, we're gonna talk about the money charge or what Paul commands Timothy to command the rich as it relates to money. So here we go, three things. Number one, the money lie. I want you to look at verse three of this passage again. Paul is blasting a group of false teachers that are creating a massive mess in the church that Timothy is pastoring. Here's what he says. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are deprived in mind and deprived of the truth. Now listen to these next words. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Here's the big money lie, and it's not a lie that's brand new. It's a lie that's really old. It's a lie that sometimes gets referred to as the prosperity gospel, and the lie is this, that Jesus... And the godliness that comes with the life of pursuing, worshiping, loving Jesus is a means to the end of getting all the things that you'll need to be happy, including money. The prosperity gospel that's preached in a lot of churches, that's really popular on Christian television and Christian radio, can be boiled down to one simple message. It's this, Jesus is a means to an end. So love Jesus pray to Jesus, worship Jesus, trust Jesus, not because Jesus is the treasure and the center of the entire universe and deserving of all of your affections just because of who he is, but because if you play the religious game right, you win in all the categories of life that you want to win in. So here's what these false teachers are saying. They're saying godliness is a means of great gain. So if you have enough faith, if you pray hard enough, if you believe enough, if you have the right doctrine, if your lifestyle lines up with the faith once delivered, here's what's gonna happen. God's hand is gonna be forced to be open towards you in material blessings and you'll get everything you need in this life to be rich and to be successful. Here's the great problem with this. The great problem is we do this in all kinds of categories And when we do this in these categories, what we're subtly believing is one of the most profound and devastating lies that we could ever believe about Jesus. And that's that Jesus is not in himself our treasure, but Jesus is just a path to get to our treasure. We do it with sex. We do it with marriage. We do it with our jobs. 
And we do it all the time with money. The truth is so different than the lie. Here's the truth. The truth is there is such a thing as the godly rich, the godly rich who worship Jesus and use money. There are people throughout the history of the church that love Jesus and they use their money as a tool of advancing his kingdom, providing for their families, restraining evil in the world, working for justice. There is such a thing as the godly rich who worship Jesus and use money. There's also such a thing as the wicked rich, the wicked rich who use Jesus and worship money. They use Jesus and worship money. And I just want us to stop for just a second. Maybe your bend of idolatry isn't money. Maybe it's finding a spouse or maybe it's career success or maybe it's having the perfect family or maybe it's image management. But I just want you to hear me say this. One of the most evil, insidious things that can ever happen in a human heart, which we are all tempted to do, is to see Jesus as simply a tool that you use to get everything you need in life to be happy. It's tragic because Jesus is the center of all that's good. Jesus is the giver of all that's good and every good gift that's given in and through Jesus, all of those gifts are little tiny signs that point to a greater, bigger, more satisfying reality, which is Christ himself. So there are the godly rich who worship Jesus and use money. There's the wicked rich who worship money and use Jesus. There's also the godly poor who worship Jesus and lack money. You can love Jesus and not be materially blessed. You can love Jesus and be really poor. You can love Jesus and be homeless. In fact, Jesus in his earthly ministry was not a wealthy man. He came from a poor family. He was considered lower class. He was from a podunk town. Jesus lived his life without having a lot of material blessings. And we are followers and lovers of that Jesus. So don't be surprised if you have faith in Jesus and it's not translated to getting the ultimate car that you dreamed of getting. Sometimes Jesus blesses his people with great riches. And when he does so, you're to be the godly rich. You're to be one that loves Jesus and uses money for the things that Jesus cares about. But sometimes... Jesus allows his people to stay in poverty and yet have all things because they have Jesus himself. Now, there's also such a thing as the wicked poor who lack Jesus and lack money. And there's no poverty in the entire world as poor as the poverty of not having Jesus in your life. There's nothing more tragic than not only not having money and resources and a home, but also not having Jesus that would make all that suffering endurable because the end of life is to see Jesus face to face and have all things. Now pick, pick up again in verse six through eight, look what it says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. Here's the reality. And it's really beautiful and it's really freeing. And the hope today is that we could be set free from some really subtle but insidious lies about where the good life is really found in this world. Here's the truth. If you believe in Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you've given your life to Jesus, then here's what you need to know. He himself is the treasure 
And the Father has promised to meet your needs and he's aware of everything that you need even before you ask him. In Jesus, we have a relationship with the Father that means that we, didn't, we, we don't have to try to find everything that we long for eternally in this life. We actually can have an eternal perspective on wealth. Jesus put it like this, Matthew 6 Starting in verse 19, he said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In Luke 12, verse 15, he said, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So listen to me. It's really possible to be rich and to be content and full of joy, but not without Jesus. And and listen, the whole point of Ecclesiastes, which we walked through this last year, the whole point of Ecclesiastes is that there's really nothing more tragic than getting all the things that you thought would make you happy and realizing that none of those things can really make you happy. We have a whole lot of people in our church that have the house they dreamed of and the car they dreamed of and the beautiful spouse that they dreamed of and the job that they dreamed of and what they found in acquiring all the things that they thought would satisfy the deepest longings of their soul is that all of those things that were shiny have promised to do something that they just can't do. Blaise Pascal called the state of the human heart the infinite abyss. And the abyss of our heart is so deep that you can throw in a fortune and it's never going to hit the bottom and fill it up. You can throw in, you can throw in the perfect body with killer abs. It's not going to fill the abyss up. You can throw in all the vacations, the dream house, the Colorado hunting cabin. I'm speaking to my own soul right now. You can throw all that stuff into the abyss. And here's what you need to know. Only that which is infinite can fill the abyss inside of our souls that's infinite. Jesus is the treasure. Now, it's also, because of Jesus being the treasure, possible to be poor and content and full of joy, but not without Jesus. Money isn't the issue. Satisfaction in Jesus is the issue. What you treasure, what you love, is that which has your heart. Now, let me tell you about my hero. My hero, who I'm sure is not alive now, was a little lady that I met in a leprosy clinic in Nepal about 15 years ago. And I met her in this clinic that was dirty and disgusting. And this little lady came up to me. I don't know how old she was. She looked like she was probably, um, probably in her 60s or 70s, but probably in reality, she might have been in her 20s or 30s. She had no teeth. She was missing part of her nose. Most of her fingers were gone. Lady literally had nothing. And this lady, she came up to me and she just blew my whole perspective on the world because she walked up to me with like eyes of sparkling joy. And she said, hey, can I tell you how good Jesus has been to me? This lady told me her story about being like, 11 or 12 years old, getting diagnosed with leprosy. And in her culture, in her village back then, 
people thought that that meant that she had an evil spirit. So her own family drove her out of the village. Her village rejected her. She spent the rest of her life homeless because of her disease. Various injuries weren't treated. They got infected. She lost fingers. She lost parts of her face. She was disfigured. But here's what's crazy. Along that journey, she found Jesus Christ. And the satisfaction of knowing him and being reunited with the love of the Father because of Jesus' death. And she found what it's like to have hope that this life, when it's really painful, doesn't get the last word on you eternally. And she found the joy of the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, through the finished work of Jesus. She was my hero because I come from a culture that has everything and yet has nothing. She came from a culture that has nothing and yet she had everything. The big idea with money and the money lie is that when we reduce Jesus as a means to an end, you lose the entirety of the Christian faith. Jesus is not an add-on to your back pocket so that you can self-actualize. Like, if you're going to turn Jesus into that, walk away from the church and go watch Tony Robbins' videos. Don't turn Jesus into your self-help guru. He's not. Don't make Jesus your bellboy. Don't make Jesus your personal matchmaker or your love coach. Don't make Jesus, don't make Jesus your financial planner. He's not. He is God. And he's ruthless about money, not because he's mean. He's ruthless about money because he refuses to allow your heart to love and worship two different masters. Why? Because he cares about your eternal joy. And your eternal joy is not going to be found in stuff, no matter how much stuff you get. And your eternal joy can't be limited or capped by object physical poverty. If you have Jesus, you have everything. If you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. This leads us to the second reality. Not only the money lie, that's the money danger. Why is money so dangerous? Well, Paul tells Timothy, starting in verse six, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Here's the danger of money. It's twofold, I think. The danger of money is that money itself can be our God when we think that money equals the good life or money equals security or money equals identity or money equals comfort or money equals a good future. As soon as money is the answer, as soon as there's money and an equal sign followed by whatever it is you think is that thing which can name you, define you, and rescue you. Here's what's happening. You've fallen into the money danger, the trap of money actually being your God. Now, money's not always itself our God. The second danger is that sometimes money's just the means that we use to try to buy our gods. So if we worship status, we can use money to get it in our culture, can't we? If you worship comfort, you can get a lot of comfort if you have money. If you worship belonging, it's amazing how many more doors are open to you if you've got money. If you worship security, 
if you worship sex, if you worship power, money's a really good tool to try to get the gods that you think are worthy of your worship. Now, Jesus tells a story to try to tell us how absurd this way of thinking is. It's found in Luke chapter 12. Let me read it to you quickly. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus, be a means to the end for me. But he said to him, man who made me judge or arbiter over you. And he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, it's like not what you want God to tell you, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So it is, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich to God. Here's what, here's what Jesus, I think, is getting at. The danger of money, when money itself is our God, or money is the means we use to chase our God, the danger is this. It leads you away from faith in the one true God to all kinds of gods that can't really answer the bigger questions about life and death, meaning, and judgment. The great danger of money, listen to me, is that no matter how much money you make, money can't undo death. And money can't undo the reality that upon death, every single one of us, whether you believe it or not, are going to stand before your maker and give an account for what you thought was the most valuable in your life. That day is coming. Money can't undo it. Therefore, here's the thing I want you to take away from the money danger. He who dies with the most toys still dies, and then comes judgment. Enjoy brunch. (laughs) He who dies with the most toys still dies. That's the absurdity of worshiping riches. It's It's still going to be handed off either by your will or against your will to other people. You're not taking any of it with you. Your body is going to be laid into the ground and you're going to stand before the living God. Loving money leads away from faith because it replaces God with other gods. Now, it's important to note that it's not money itself that is the root of all evil, as is sometimes quoted. The love of money, worshiping money, having a disordered desire for money is a root of all kinds of evil. What that means is that we can use God and worship money or we can worship God and use money, but we can't do both simultaneously. And I just want to confess how scary that is to me because there's nobody in this room that's reached some spiritual place where the tug of war of your heart is solved and you're out of the woods yet. You and me are not out of the woods yet. We have hearts that are prone to go after all kinds of gods that aren't God. And the reality is you can't have two masters can't worship God and money. Now, let me say a couple things before we move on. Uh, Number one, if you're uncomfortable right now, I'm good with that. 
I'm good with that. Because if you're not uncomfortable right now, we're not doing what we're supposed to do when we gather together. If you're angry right now, I'm not good with that. I'm worried. Because if you're super mad right now, if you're like checking the exits, trying to figure out how you can sneak out of here, maybe like throw me the bird, head out, head out for mimosas. If you're just stewing, if you're super mad that I would say these things, here's what that anger, if you trace it to its source, is really telling you. It's telling you that this text that we're reading is actually reading you. And if you're really mad about it, and that anger doesn't lead you to actually processing what is it that you really love, what is it that you really worship, you're in a dangerous spot. And I would say, if you're just indifferent right now, I'm the most worried about you. If you're like, this isn't for me, hope my neighbor's getting this. Our hearts, our hearts are prone in the most dangerous way, in the most eternally dangerous way to chase after all kinds of created things as if they were creator. That's the problem with money. It can be your God or it can get you your gods, but you can't worship those little G gods and worship the capital G real God. You can't do it simultaneously. So let's get real practical. And this is number three, the money charge. What do we do with money? How do we handle it in light of Jesus and his grace? Pick up verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, Charge them, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves and a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Okay, before we walk through this quickly and we get to the application, let me say a couple of things. If you're sitting there thinking, I'm glad I'm off the hook because he's addressing the rich with this charge and I'm not in that category, right? Dodge that bullet. I'm not rich. I don't have to pay attention. Let's check Facebook, right? Let let me say a couple of things to all of us. The first thing I want to say is first, I love the economic diversity of this church. It's literally one of my favorite things about this church. I love the fact that we have the wealthy and we have the poor all worshiping and loving Jesus in community. So those of you, our our members, our attenders that are homeless, man, you make this church a better place and you're valued. I want you to be here, man. I want you to be here. And if you're ever treated disrespectfully, disrespectfully by a member of this church, you come tell me, I'll be your advocate. I'll have words with them. To our men and women that are in recovery, that have had to walk away from homes to try to get healthy and get clean. You're, you're needed here. To our widows, you're loved, you're valued, you got room here. Jesus makes it really clear with the story of a little widow who gave away a penny that what God really values is not the quantity of your giving and generosity, it's the quality. So those of us in our community that are considered poor, you make this a better church. I don't want you to go anywhere. Now, To those of us that are thinking, well, I maybe am not poor, but I'm certainly not rich, so I don't have to pay attention to this charge. Let me just say, we may not have tons of people in our church that are wealthy by American standards. Like we don't have a whole lot of the 1% that are part of our church. Um, But by the world standards, darn near everybody in our church is, is wealthy, is rich. 
So if you have a job of any kind, if you have a job of any kind, if you have any income in this particular moment, you need to pay attention to the charge that Paul unpacks to Timothy. I want to walk you through these charges quickly. Here's the application. One, the rich in this present age may not be the rich in the next age. Major warning. You may think that you've got God's blessing right now because of your material wealth, and you may stand before God and realize that you were a wicked and terrible steward of God's money, and it would be a real tragedy. It would be a real tragedy to be wealthy now and to have no reward when you get into the eternal kingdom of God. It's possible, because he says, as for the rich in this present age, it's possible to be rich now and to not be rich then. And what I want for you is for you to not just be wealthy now and to not receive the numerous various rewards of faithful stewardship when you see Jesus. I actually want you to be rich now and I want you to lay up treasure for the next age. Secondly, if you're wealthy now, don't be haughty. Don't be haughty. Haughtiness is pride in which we take credit for grace. So anytime you compare yourself with another person as it relates to your work ethic, as it relates to your material wealth, your income, how good you are at saving and managing money, every time you look at somebody in community and you think, wish they'd get it together, you are falling into the trap of haughtiness. And haughtiness is really dangerous because it's patting yourself on the back for things that God has given you as a gift. Now, I hear what you're thinking, but I work really hard. You know who else works really hard? Day laborers. Or maybe you're saying to yourself, I got an education. Don't you think that there's a lot of people in our city that would love the privilege of being able to get an education? Or maybe you're saying, I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made man. Really? You believe in (laughs) self-generation? You created yourself? You formed yourself out of nothing? You picked You picked the time and the season that you were born. You're really going to take credit that only the Almighty gets throughout the entire council of Scripture. That's a dangerous place to be in. Or maybe you're saying, well, I'm just smarter than other people, so of course I've succeeded. Maybe you are. Who gave you your brain? Did you earn your brain? See, The danger with haughtiness is that it fails to see that we live in a grace-driven universe in which all good things that you have in your life have been gifts of God that deserve worship and gratitude, not stinginess and arrogance. Third charge, set your hope on God, not money. He charges them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Here's what he's saying. Money can give the appearance of security, but death and judgment shatter that glass house. Money can make you feel really secure until you're on your deathbed. Money can make you feel really secure until it goes away with recessions 
or stock market crashes or oil busts or layoffs or cancer or forced retirement. So here's what he's saying. Don't put your hope in the money bucket. Put your hope in God, who's the sovereign orchestrator of history. Fourthly, his charge is, this is good news, enjoy what God's given you. He says, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Here's what this is. This is a safeguard against the opposite and equal error of the prosperity gospel, the poverty gospel. Look, Look at me. If you have money, what God wants for you is not for you to feel guilty. It's for you to feel grateful. It's okay if you have the means to take your family on vacation. Don't feel guilty about that. Don't be ashamed of that. If you have the means to provide your kids with a college education, praise be to God, don't feel ashamed of that. If you have the means to take your girl on a nice date and you're living a life of generosity and you're being faithful, you're not being a bad steward of God's money, you got the means to take your girl on a nice date, don't feel ashamed of that. Say thank you to God. Don't be guilty, be grateful. It's okay to enjoy the things that God's given you. It's okay, it's okay. God's not looking down and saying, oh man, how dare you enjoy the gifts I've given you? He's a dad. I've never given anything to my kids and then got ticked off at them because they enjoyed the things I gave them. <laughs> like, didn't see that coming. You enjoyed your Christmas present. That's stupid. It's okay to enjoy. But this leads us to the safeguard against enjoying it selfishly, he says, be rich in good works. Be rich in good works. Don't get so consumed on enjoying what God's given you that you lose the simplicity that this life is short and you're actually lay up treasure in heaven by being about the father's business. Good works, if you have money, include loving your family, engaging with your church, working for the good of your city. If you have employees, making sure that you care about the thriving of your employees, caring about the dignity and the advancement of your coworkers, working for the goodness of our world, caring about the creation that God's given us to steward. Be rich in good works. Now, let me say, one of the things that is a good safeguard here is if you have money, one of the dangers that I see often is that Your lifestyle is so fast to maintain your current standard of living that you have no time for good works. You have no time to care for the poor. You have no time to be on mission. You have no time to be in gospel community. If you have no margin to be about the things that Jesus expects you to be about, you are too busy and you're poor in good works. In addition, he says, be generous. Be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Where do you start with generosity? Let me give you three places that I recommend you start. Where do you start with generosity? Here we go. Hear me. This is my advice to my children. This is my advice as I meet with new members. I think this is a good place to start with your discipline of generosity. If you don't start somewhere, you'll never end up being generous. Has anybody else noticed that yet? So if you're just waiting for the magic moment where God just drops generosity dust on you and you're like, oh, I don't love money anymore. It's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. In response to God giving best and God giving most in his son Jesus, you need disciplines in your life that form a generous heart. Here's where I recommend you start. Tithe. 
tithe. Oh, but we're not under the law. No, man, we're under grace. You don't tithe. You don't tithe to get God to love you. The grace of God is a supernatural empowerment to love what God loves way more than you could have done under the law. Don't tithe because it's a legalistic requirement. Tithe because if old covenant people could tithe, new covenant people, that's a great place to start, not end in our generosity. Tithe. What does that mean? It means you're never going to live a life of generosity unless you start with your budget and say, you know what? Before I spend money on myself, before I spend money on my comforts, before I pay OG&E, before all of these different things get their cut, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remember from my own heart that it all belongs to God, 100% of it. And I'm going to set aside the first fruits of what I give to go to the local church in which I get pastored and I share in mission. Tithing is about bringing in the old covenant, bringing into the storehouse the first fruits of what God's given you so that the work and ministry of God can continue through his temple. Now, what does that mean in the new covenant? Well, it means tithing should be the first place you start with your giving and it shouldn't be it shouldn't be you starting with all of your pet projects and all your favorite nonprofits. You can help and bless all those things in the next category. Tithing starts with saying, look, God's planted me in the local church. The local church is God's primary means for advancing his mission all over the globe. And I'm gonna recognize that with generous, regular, first fruits giving. And I'm gonna make that a discipline in my life. And I would say, we've got a lot of members in our church who God's blessed richly that are not generous and you're not generous because you haven't started with the small practice of setting aside first fruits every time you get paid and making that a spiritual discipline of formation in your life. Make it a discipline of formation. Secondly, alms, alms. What is that word? Well, alms throughout the history of the church, alms are intentional gifts to alleviate the pain and suffering of the poor. And here's what's crazy. God cares so much about the poor. He says wild things in scripture. He says in the Proverbs, he that gives to the poor lends to God and God will repay. One of the great testimonies of the early church against paganism was the way that there were no people that were poor among the Christians that other Christians overlooked as they distributed what God had given them. There was enough for all. Alms are living on mission, caring for those people that have needs in your life. That can be done personally as you're living in community and as a couple that you love, they're going through hard financial times, can't pay their bills and you give a gift to them or a couple that you love doesn't have a car to get to work and you give them your extra car. Those are all alms or it can be intentional gifts to the poor that we do together. On Christmas Eve, we do an alms offering. Uh, last year, you guys gave to our compassion offering around $95,000, praise be to God. Every cent of that $95,000 was used throughout the course of this year to alleviate pain and suffering locally and globally. Those are alms. The year before, the, I, I'm hesitant to tell you the number of the year before because we dropped in generosity. The year before, you guys gave almost $120,000. We used that to help people with the floods in India hurricane relief. We use that as benevolence for poor people in our church. Alms. 
The, the third thing are offerings. And offerings aren't tithes and they're not alms. They're just simply the category of other. Any project, any ministry, anything that you feel led to give to, you can give offerings. Generosity is not going to catch you by surprise. Generosity is about building spiritual disciplines in which you see the grace of God forming your practice and developing virtue in your life. Let me end with this. Lastly, he says, take hold of that which is truly life. I'll end with this thought. Money makes a great tool in the worship of Jesus and in the advancement of his kingdom. It's a great tool. Money makes an awful God. The God money will devour you and devour your soul and devour your family. Jesus, the real God, was devoured for your benefit. Take hold of that which is life. Life, no matter how you save it, how you pinch it, how you squeeze it, is not coming out of a dollar bill. Life flowed out of the hands and the side of Jesus Christ. Don't use Jesus and worship money. Worship Jesus and use money.